Evergreen Sermons Online and Pastor Michael Gabbert's Wednesday night series, First Corinthians Church for Broken People. This message from January 29th, 2020 is entitled, What About Tongues? Citing First Corinthians chapter 14 and Acts chapter 2. Good evening. Appreciate y'all being here. Thank you for uh, braving the cold. Uh, some of you have uh, just had quite a bit of teaching this week. I appreciate you. Uh, staying, staying, staying the course. Um, I, I was telling somebody I taught, uh, I taught from the book of Psalms on Sunday and then a Sunday night and, and Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday lunch today, we, we shared our winter Bible study from the book of Jeremiah. So, uh, I'm pretty ready to get back to the New Testament. Let's look at some first Corinthians tonight. We're in a series of lessons. Last week, I taught on the 14th chapter of first Corinthians where Paul takes tongues and prophecy and sets them side by side and talks about um, uh, his correction of the misunderstanding of what's valuable uh, in the eyes of the Corinthian church. I want to follow that lesson up a little bit, kind of take a parenthetical uh, pause in our first Corinthian study and and take this topic of, of tongues and just explore it a little bit further. And, uh, and, and see what we can see as we look at the material across the New Testament and a couple of quotations that show up from the Old Testament and see what we can, can figure out. Um, living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, this is probably a more common topic of conversation than maybe in some other places because Tulsa has such a high, um, uh, uh, there, there's so many uh, Pentecostal ministries that have their headquarters here that it seems like in Tulsa you're more likely uh, to have a conversation with a co-worker or somebody that you meet about the topic of tongues probably than any other place I've ever lived. Um, and so it, it, it's a worthwhile subject to just um, explore uh, what the New Testament has to say and, frankly, what the New Testament uh, chooses not to say about about tongues. Over the years, I've run into people and had conversations along this line, and and there's some real interesting um, positions that people hold. Sometimes uh, tongues is presented as uh, uh, as evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's presented as a necessary evidence that proves uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's presented as uh, as an important second part of the salvation process. Presented almost as if to not experience tongues is to um, sort of fall short in what you should expect your salvation process to be. Um, that's really the question that, that, that I try and answer when I talk to people about this, because it seems like as a Southern Baptist pastor, usually when the subject comes up, when somebody comes to me to talk about this subject, it almost always stems from the same question, which is essentially, am I missing something I need? Well, 
I try and take that question seriously because, honestly, when somebody asks that question, it's usually from a good motive. I mean, they want all that Christ has for them. They want, uh, they, they want to pursue the fullness uh, of the Christian life. They don't want to sort of leave anything on the table. And so I try and have that conversation and, and take it seriously because it's not a bad thing to say, am I missing something I need? Because I want everything Christ has for me. I like that attitude. Uh, the question usually sprouts, though, because they've had a previous conversation with somebody that has made them feel inferior or lacking or somehow, um, you know, not really having a handle on the fullness of, of what Christ has. So um, let, let's see what the New Testament has to say. The first place uh, this shows up, obviously, is in the second chapter of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, as he prepares to ascend to heaven, he tells his inner circle of disciples, he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait because there is going to be a helper who comes to you. Now, I don't think they fully understood exactly what was going to happen. All they knew was Jerusalem was the assigned place and the instruction was wait until it happens. Pentecost was 10 days after, um, well, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. Passover was the night before the cross. Jesus transforms the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. Uh, they go out from the from the upper room where they shared the Passover meal. They they go to Gethsemane. Jesus prays. He's arrested. The whole weekend happens. Easter Sunday morning, Jesus is resurrected. And over the next 40 days, he makes appearances to his disciples. He teaches them further. He gives them final instructions. He ascends on that 40th day. Ten more days pass, and Pentecost, which was the next Jewish celebration in the cycle of festivals, Pentecost happens. It's it, it in the in the planning of God. Uh, they don't know exactly what they're waiting on. They don't know how long it's going to be. But Pentecost was a perfect opportunity, a perfect time for the birth of the church, because in the same way that Passover was celebrated across uh, the Jewish nation as well as the, the the diaspora the the jews that lived all across the roman empire so pentecost was one of those festivals one of those celebrations when people would come from all over the known world and and come back to jerusalem for this festival consequently the church is going to be born uh in the midst of an an expanded population Jerusalem is literally bursting at the seams with people who have come from all over. And as the gospel transforms believer, uh, creates believers and begins to transform their lives, the church is born in Jerusalem and the gospel, guess what? Because of the way God timed this, the gospel is going to be carried initially across the Roman Empire by those first Jews who came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, met Jesus Christ in the gospel, and took him home with them wherever it was that they went. We know that Paul is the primary church planter. He traveled across uh, across the empire planting churches. But never forget that the very first people to carry the gospel 
were those who went home from Pentecost and took Jesus with them. The timing for the birth of the church couldn't be more perfectly orchestrated. But the way the church was born, it required the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will now uh, take residence in the lives of believers... He takes, he will fulfill the words that Jesus said that, that, that his followers will be able to do greater works than he did because of the expanded influence of the Spirit of God in the lives of, of believers across the globe in every generation on every continent. The church was birthed with the activity of the Spirit. Now, we call the book of Acts, it's, it's officially called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, it's been suggested by more than one writer that the book is more appropriately called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because all the way through this book, it is the record of the Holy Spirit expanding the church and creating this witness to Christ across the known world in the first, in the first century. When the, when the Spirit comes and falls on the believers who have gathered to pray, they are empowered by the presence that, that that comes into their lives, and they uh, receive an extraordinary gift, which enables them to scatter out among the crowd, the population that has come from all over the Roman Empire. Peter preaches the Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2, and the other believers, the 120 that have been waiting for this moment, they are clearly out and about among the crowd sharing their faith in, in, in Christ. That day, the church goes from 120 believers to 3,000 believers because of the miraculous encounter with the Spirit of God. And it is facilitated by the ability of the believers to communicate with people who spoke other heart languages than the, than the Hebrew or the Aramaic that was typically spoken by those who'd grown up in, in Jerusalem and, and the surrounding area. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now that's an important important verse. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit gave them each the ability to speak in a foreign language, apparently a language suitable for the encounters that he sovereignly knew each one of them would have. This speaking in different languages, it wasn't the same language. It wasn't just one language that they didn't know. It was a variety of languages because the target of the gospel that day was to people from a variety of, of locations, a variety of people groups, a variety of different tongues. And each one was uniquely suited and prepared for the encounter for the gospel that they were about to have. Verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, 
Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus uh, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, proselytes, God-fearers, non-Jews who were following the Jewish God. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? Well, biblically speaking, one of the significances of Pentecost is that it is a reversal of the curse that occurs in the early chapters of Genesis that we call the Tower of Babel. When men became so filled with themselves, so arrogant, that they proposed uh, a tower that would reach to the heavens. In effect, when you go back and, and study that chapter, Babel was not about a great construction project. It was about, it was about building something that would allow mankind to challenge God. And God looked down and said, will anything be impossible for them? They've, they're working together, but in their rebellion, they're working together to the wrong ends. And in, in that Tower of Babel, where we get the language, the, the word to babble, to be confused, to speak without meaning, their languages were confused. And the peoples of the earth found common language and separated into different people groups. That's the story. In effect, it's the coming of the of the, uh, the the pre- precise moment when redemption is ready to be presented to the whole world, that the curse of Babel in that moment is temporarily um, uh, discontinued so that the gospel can be presented. Peter stands up to preach. The others witness to the crowd. The coming of the, of the different languages in Acts chapter 2 is often pointed to as uh, proof that tongues is the key to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, well, I'll make my case in just a minute. Let's look at some other some other passages. Okay, hold on to Acts chapter two. Follow the outline that I've given you. Let's go to Acts chapter eleven. In Acts chapter eleven, we have a story. Uh, that happens in the house of a man by the name of Cornelius. Um, let's see. Peter is invited to, to visit um, this place. Where am I? Oh. Verse 12. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. Peter gets an invitation. Peter, a follower of Jesus, but at the same time a good and faithful Jewish man, He gets an invitation into the house of a Gentile. Now, from a Jewish standpoint, that's a no-brainer. We don't do that. We don't cross the threshold into a Gentile house. Simply entering that space was enough to disqualify a Jewish man from worship at the temple. He would be considered unclean. God has given Peter a vision that lets him know that this is coming. So the, the invitation arrives... And he says, the spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. 
These six brothers accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you that you and all your household will be saved by. Now think about that. Peter gets an invitation to go to the house of a Gentile. And when he gets there, the the man of the house says, I've had a vision. I was instructed to send for you by name and that you had a message that would lead me to salvation. Talk about the fish jumping into the boat, right? Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. He's talking about Pentecost. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? All right. Now, let's remember that. Here we have uh, Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes on a collection of Jews. They speak in tongues, present the gospel. The church explodes to 300 people. Acts chapter 11, we have Peter invited into the house of a Gentile. He goes, and in preaching the message, the Holy Spirit comes to that Gentile family, and they begin to speak in tongues. Okay. It looks like I'm making the case that salvation is followed by speaking in tongues. Stay with me. Let's go to the next one that I've given you there. Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, there is an encounter um, with a different group of people. Verse 19, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism were you baptized with, he asked them. With John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other languages and to prophesy. Okay, now... We've got a third group here. The first group, Jews at in Jerusalem, they receive the, the, the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues and go out, and the church is born as they witness to the crowds. The second one, we have a Gentile home. Peter goes in uh, against his natural inclinations. He follows the direction of the Spirit. He preaches the message of salvation. Salvation comes to that house. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentile family. They speak in tongues. Here in Acts chapter 19, we're in Ephesus, and Paul is there. He meets some people, and they seem to have some some common faith to them. But as he begins to have conversation with them, he finds out that they don't have the full gospel that, that, he, that he was carrying about Jesus Christ. They had only been baptized into the baptism of John. That's John the Baptist, who out in the wilderness was asking people to give themselves in repentance for their sins because there was one... One coming who would secure their salvation. They had been baptized in that baptism, but it's wrong to say Paul baptized them again because what Paul did was he baptized them correctly in, in, in Christian baptism. 
when they were baptized, now we're in Ephesus, a pagan city. It is one of the, it has one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis or, or Diana. It was one of the grandest tourist attractions in the ancient world. It was a place of, uh, of rabid idolatry and, 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 and all kinds of paganism, uh, a Gentile city. And here we find these followers of John who now come to know Christ. They are given the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. Okay. What we have are three different scenarios. They're not all exactly the same. Paul specifically mentions in this passage that he uh, laid hands on them as he prayed with them for salvation and their gift of the Holy Spirit, their reception of the Holy Spirit and their speaking in tongues followed that. Well, is laying on of hands a part of this equation? Is is there a formula? Well, we go back to the previous story. There was no laying on of hands with Peter in the household of Cornelius. In fact, there was no laying on of hands in Acts chapter two in the original in the original version. So so far, what we don't have is a formula, except that if we limit ourselves to these three passages. What we have is salvation comes, the Holy Spirit takes up residence, and they speak in tongues. Now, let me look, let's look at some more passages. Alright? Go to, um, let's turn back a few pages to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we have our first fly in the ointment. In Acts chapter 8, in verse 14, let's start there. We're back. This is pre-Paul days. This is Peter and the boys. It says, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter uh, basically announces a curse against this guy who thinks he stumbled on to some sort of secret way to have a, a, a magical hold on things. He wants this power. But the point for our study is this. The Samaritans, uh, yet a different group, The Samaritans receive the good news of the gospel. They respond in faith and come into salvation. Here, there's the laying on of hands for them to receive the Holy Spirit. But there's no mention of tongues. Hmm. So we've got tongues, but no laying on of hands in Acts chapter 2. We've got laying on of hands, but no tongues in Acts chapter eight. We've got, we've got tongues, but no laying on of hands in Acts chapter 11, but we've got tongues and the laying on of hands in Acts chapter 19. All right. Well, let's, let's see if we can find something else to confuse us. Go to Acts chapter 11. The chapter that told us about Cornelius is going to take us um, on a journey in, let's see here, 
Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking in the wrong chapter. That's chapter 10. In Acts chapter 11, oh yeah. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we have a church that has been established probably by people who received the gospel on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. They were probably God-fearers because they make their way back to a city called Antioch. Antioch is uh, a Gentile city. There, it doesn't seem to have any indication that the church at Antioch really had a Jewish foundation other than uh, the, the, the foundation for all of Christianity that was in Judaism. It's a church made up of believers who come from a Gentile background. Paul makes his way to Antioch and becomes a part of the church. He and Barnabas are regular teachers in the leadership of this church. It says, in the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Now, what we know about the church at Antioch, I've been saying all the way through this uh, study of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church was probably the most dysfunctional congregation that we know of in the first century. I would go so far as to say at the opposite end of the spectrum, the church at Antioch was possibly the healthiest church in the New Testament. They're the first church to intentionally set aside members to be sent out on mission. The first church to have a commissioning ceremony where they, where they prayed, where they recognized that the Spirit's call prayed and sent them off to carry the gospel intentionally somewhere else. Now up to this point, the gospel had been carried by those who had it as they went wherever they went. But this is the first actual, what we would call mission trip that we find in the New Testament. What we don't find is everywhere we find the the church at Antioch popping up throughout the book of Acts, we never find any mention there of the gift of tongues. Now, I've read all of these passages as we've kind of looked at the different different settings in the book of Acts to make this point. If, as I'm often told in conversation, if tongues is a necessary part of the salvation process, then it should show up every single time in the New Testament that salvation comes to somebody new. It does not. If it is a necessary evidence that the Holy Spirit has taken residence in the life of a new believer, it should show up every single time that it is presented in the New Testament. It does not. If it's critical to the life and health of the church, it should show up in every instruction Paul gives to the churches on how they should function. Here's something interesting. In Acts chapter 19, Paul and his encounter with with that group in Ephesus that experienced the gift of tongues in that moment. Ephesus has clearly a tongue story 
in the background of the church there. And yet, when we get to the letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, not one time in six chapters does Paul mention anything about tongues. This is a church that knew what that was. They had, they were aware of it. And yet Paul makes no instruction. He issues no commands, no, uh, no orders about how that's to be incorporated in the life of the church. It's absent from the Ephesian letter. Now, on the other hand, we, we look at other letters. Um, it's not in the book to Galat- to the Galatian church. It doesn't show up in either of the, uh, Thessalonian letters. It doesn't show up in the Philippian letter. Paul seems to be mysteriously unconcerned with tongues if it is, in fact, a necessary reality in the life of the church. He seems to forget about it in his detailed instructions to almost every church he writes to in the New Testament, with one exception. He does talk extensively about tongues to the church at Corinth in the letter that we've been studying called 1 Corinthians. But get this. There's no mention of tongues in the 2 Corinthian letter. All right, let's see what we can make if we can make sense of this. Uh in in your outline, I I've I've listed this um uh tongues are a sign of what? Oh, two types of glosses. Let me let me let me go back and 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 mention this. The reason for the heading of your first point, the word glossus, glosses is is the Greek word that is translated tongues or sometimes translated languages. The reason I say there's two types is because everywhere we see it appear in all of these acts stories that we've looked at. It's clearly presented as an understandable, uh, a a translatable language. Acts chapter 2, people said, what is this? These are Galileans, and yet we hear this story about the mighty works of God in our own heart language. They're speaking a language that they can't possibly know. It was an understandable, a translatable language. In all of the other Acts episodes, it is uh, presented as an actual human language that can be understood by other people who know that language. We saw last week, as we looked through the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that Paul, in dealing with the Corinthians, seems to be talking about something different from that. They called it, they referred to this uh, event, this ecstatic utterance that was happening in the Corinthian church, they referred to it as the language of angels. In fact, Paul speaks to them about the fact that their words, this glossus, this language that they were so proud of, is a language that they were speaking to God that not only does nobody else in the church or in the community understand, but even the speaker didn't understand. One of the fascinating things, apparently, in all of the episodes of the book of Acts, is that uh, this miracle of tongues, the thinker, the, the speaker, apparently heard himself or understood himself in his own language, but when the words came out of his mouth, it was in a, it was miraculously in a language that the hearer could understand as his own. 
There's no evidence that as Paul and, and the other, uh, Peter and the others began to speak at Pentecost, there's no evidence that they were speaking and there was recognition on the part of the hearer, but the speaker had no idea what he was saying. So this miracle is a miracle of, of, of translation, but it's a language that can be understood, but it didn't compromise the speaker's ability to know what was being said. It was just babble reversed. God made it possible for there to be communication between the speaker and the hearer for the purpose of salvation. That's not what we find in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What Paul says there is, What you're doing is disruptive in the church because it appears to be pagan nonsense. You seem to be pursuing this ecstatic utterance, speaking the language of angels, but you're doing it so that people think you're particularly spiritual. So that you're gratified at the recognition that you're somehow under the the, the sway, under the presence of the Spirit of God in an extraordinary way. Remember Paul's ratio that he gives us in, in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, I'd rather speak five words of understandable proclamation than 10,000 words of the language of angels that nobody can understand. Why? Because five words are profitable. 10,000 words that nobody can understand is just noise. Okay. There appears to be, we appear to be talking about two different things. The glosses of the book of Acts is an intelligent language that can be understood. The glosses of 1 Corinthians 14 is an ecstatic utterance that they were proud to say we're communicating with God in a way that, that requires the Spirit's work in us. But Paul, but Paul tells them, but there's not even any edification. There's not even any strengthening for your faith because you have no idea what's being said. We're talking about two different kinds of, 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 of events. The, the word is the same. Uh, but where one means intelligible language that can be translated, the other means an ecstatic utterance that is not understood except by supernatural means. Okay, so what is this sign of tongues? Uh, what exactly is it a sign of? Well, Peter, in the Pentecostal sermon, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, he quotes an Old Testament prophecy that comes from Joel chapter 2, uh, verses 28 through 32. By the same token, in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 22, Paul quotes an Old Testament quotation that comes from Isaiah 28, 11. When we go back and read uh, what Peter said or what Paul said, or, or go back and read the original statements that were made in the books of Joel and Isaiah... What we have to understand is, particularly the Isaiah passage, Isaiah is talking about Judah not hearing the word of God. Not that they couldn't physically hear the sound, but they weren't receiving it. They weren't accepting it. It's like when, when you speak to your, you know, when you speak to your 15 year old and you know that their ears work, they hear the words, but they don't hear you. Selective hearing. Judah had a problem. They they knew God was speaking to them, but they never seemed to quite grasp it. 
Isaiah quotes in, in the 28th chapter, he talks about how God is going to put his word into the, into the mouths of foreigners because maybe Judah would hear it better if it came from an unexpected source because they have, they have, they're tone deaf to the prophets. All right. What's that mean? Well, first of all, Isaiah is making the point that God is the God of the whole earth, the God of all nations. He can just as easily raise up a speaker of his word, a prophet, if you will, from a foreign country as he can from right there in Judah. Judah was pretty full of themselves. They were pretty satisfied that they had special standing, that that uh, that, that, that nobody else could could be what they were. Isaiah is saying, you know, God can speak through anybody. He's the God of the whole earth. What, what the point that Isaiah is making is that God is the God of the earth and the word of God has a universal application to it. We might put, take New Testament language and put it back in the Old Testament and say the gospel is universal. It's for all people. Okay. If that's the point Isaiah is making, let's flash forward back to the book of Acts. Tongues happens in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost to facilitate the presentation of the gospel. And the gospel is received gladly and the church explodes. Their tongues is uh, a sign that the gospel is universal. Who's it assigned to? It's a sign to the Jews who made up that 120 core of the church. They needed to understand right up front that this gospel really was. Jesus said, I'm going to be with you even to the ends of the earth. But I don't think that had dawned on them yet. Exactly what the implications of that were. At Pentecost, they had to go to bed that night saying, did you see that? The gospel was supernaturally made available to everybody from every corner of the empire, no matter where they had come from. You saw that list of names. There were, it included Arabs and Cretans and, 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 and people. When you look at a map and trace all that, they were literally coming to Jerusalem from every direction. Tongues were a sign not of the presence of the Holy Spirit, a sign of the universality of the gospel message. Okay, stay with me. We go to the Samaritan story. The Samaritans, the Samaritans hear the gospel and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the Samaritans were the closest thing to the Jews that, that there were. The Samaritans were sort of hybrid Jews, if you will. When the Spirit comes to the Samaritans, there's no gift of tongues, but there is an obvious presence that the Holy Spirit comes. In fact, they received the good news about Jesus and accepted it, but God withheld the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's a second event that happens later. No, he was waiting for the disciples, for the apostles to get there. Because when they see the Holy Spirit settle into the lives of the Samaritans, what's the conclusion? Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. They've got the Holy Spirit just like we got the Holy Spirit. 
Peter's conclusion is the correct conclusion. The Samaritans are qualified to come under the umbrella of the gospel. But they're close to the Jews. We don't need tongues as a sign of the universality of the gospel because the Samaritans were, were considered to be related even though they were, were, were not, they didn't have a strong relationship, but there was a connection. All right, what happens the next time? Peter goes to the house of a Gentile. Well, now we don't even have the the near connection that the Samaritans had. Now we have entered into completely new territory. Peter has crossed uh, has crossed over, and he is in the home of a Gentile. And Peter had probably never been in the home of a Gentile in his life. He presents the message of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit comes as the family receives the gift of salvation and they speak in tongues. Why? Because Peter and the other apostles needed to see that the Gentiles are also included under the umbrella of the universality of the gospel. Go back to Isaiah. Isaiah said, God's going to put the language of the gospel into the mouths of foreigners. You're going to see that he's a God of all peoples. Every time tongues shows up in the book of Acts, it is an affirmation of a new group that has been included under the umbrella of those who are eligible for the gospel. Paul presents the gospel in in Ephesus. He finds these people who have, have heard John. They've responded to John. And now they receive the gift of tongues as a confirmation that even the pagans of Ephesus are included under the umbrella of the gospel. Now... Think about this. What's the one passage we read that has no tongues in it? The church at Antioch. Acts chapter 13. Nowhere that Antioch pops up on on our radar are they associated with the gift of tongues. Why? Well, think about it. Antioch is probably the first legitimate Gentile Christian congregation in the first century. Antioch is the first church. When you look at, uh, when you look at the names of the teachers that they had on their, on their church staff, look at, look at this list. Barnabas, Barnabas was of Jewish background. Simeon, who was, who was called Niger. Lucius the Cyrenian. Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. We don't know much about these people except their names, but their names tell us that this pastoral staff, if you will, was fairly diverse in their racial and cultural backgrounds. What am I saying? There was no need for the sign of tongues at the church at Antioch because the entire church of Antioch was a sign of the universality of the gospel. This is the first church 
They commissioned missionaries and sent them out. Why? Because there was an entire Roman Empire that needed the good news of the gospel. They knew there was nobody outside the umbrella of those who were to be invited to come into the kingdom. They didn't need a sign. They knew their church itself was a sign. I preached at a church a number of years ago in Asia. And talking to the pastor, he kind of took inventory. There were probably 200 people in the, in the, in the room. He kind of, he said, just a quick glance. Uh, I think there are at least 19 nations in this room. I preached in English because that was the only language they had in common. Listen, I was fired up. Preaching in a room with 19 nations? If that's not a picture of the universal invitation of the gospel, I've never seen anything that could qualify. That was the church at Antioch. There's no mention of tongues because they didn't need the sign of tongues to confirm that everybody there was invited to the gospel. I say, uh, in your outline, I say, could this be a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence? What's interesting is um, nowhere in the Old Testament is tongues associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the entire Old Testament. Also, in the book of Acts, uh, Acts 4.31 Acts 8.15 and Acts 9.17-20. through 20. Three distinct, separate occasions that speak about the coming of the Holy Spirit and tongues is absent in all of them. Okay, what's my point? My point is that tongues is not uh, a sign of salvation. It's not even a sign of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign to the Jewish observers in each instance that this new audience is also included in the universal invitation of the gospel. Well, what is the the sign or the evidence of the Holy Spirit? I'm glad you asked. If we go back and look at every single one of these, Acts chapter 2, every single one, what we find is that there is only one thing in common. Every time the Holy Spirit comes, one thing happens. Every single time the Holy Spirit comes, there is a natural conclusion. There is a, uh, there, like night follows day, like day follows night. There is a natural progression when the Holy Spirit fills up a believer. It's not tongues. It's not laying on of hands. Every single time. And this is true all the way to the year 2020 at Evergreen Church. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, inevitably, we are bold with the gospel. Folks, that's the sign of the presence of the Spirit in a big way. Now, there's a whole different lesson that comes from the question 
if I'm never bold with the gospel, what does that say about the Holy Spirit in me? If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has residence in you. But if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if he is oozing out of every nook and cranny of your existence, the natural result is you will be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, tongues is a sign of the universal gospel. It is not particularly related to the in particularly to the end to the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present in plenty of places in the book of Acts that do not include uh, speaking in tongues. Okay, let's make our way back to First Corinthians 14, where we left last week. In your outline, I've given you the point that says uh, abuse and correction. This is the only church Paul deals with about this issue. Why? Because speaking in tongues is not a requirement. It's not a necessary part of the life of a healthy church. But it had made itself a critical element in the life of the Corinthian church. Why? Because they brought their pagan background, it filtered into the Christian church. These people were believers. They were sincere. They just had been, they, they had, they had not been able to distinguish between what was theologically appropriate and what their experiences came with them. They lived in a culture where in the pagan temples, uh, a kind of whirling dervish, uh, uh, an emotional, enthusiastic extravagance with all kinds of, uh, of, of confusing sounds and, and loud volume and, 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 and whirling dervish kinds of, of movements. Those were seen in the pagan temples as signs of, of, of being completely possessed, being completely overcome by the presence of the God that they were supposed to be worshiping. They had taken that experience and brought it into the church in a kind of syncretistic way. And so for them, the gifts that were spectacular, the gifts that were loud and animated and drew lots of attention, those are the ones everybody wanted. Because it implied that you were more spiritual than the other people who were sitting quietly here or there. Paul is going to correct this. And we looked at it last week, but let me just, let me just review some things with you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, Paul is going to say that if there's any value at all, the tongues that the Corinthians were practicing, this so-called language of the angels, is the least of the gifts. In fact, he likens it in chapter 14 to a child learning how to speak. A child can babble and we think it's cute sometimes we even babble back but a child that's 10 years old that still babbles we take to the pediatrician because it's an indication that something is wrong paul treats it like that now let me just review some pa- some verses with you from from acts chapter 14 i mean first uh, corinthians 14 so that i can give you the uh, uh, these arguments he, 
Paul doesn't mention it before 1 Corinthians. He doesn't mention it in 2 Corinthians. He never mentions it in Ephesians. He doesn't talk about it in the book of Romans, which is interesting because Paul wrote the letter to the Roman church while he was in Corinth. I mean, it's not like it wasn't on his mind. It's not like he wasn't aware of it. He refuses to recommend this gift to any other church in any other location. This type of tongues, the second version, the ecstatic utterance version of tongues, begins and ends right here in Corinth. It is nowhere else. No instructions are given to any other church, especially... Now think about this. Uh, I told you it doesn't appear in First and Second Thessalonians. It doesn't appear in Ephesians, even though the Ephesian church has a background. They're familiar with the Acts version of tongues, which is uh, a translatable language. It doesn't appear in Romans. It doesn't appear in Galatians. Now, it's fascinating that tongues doesn't appear in the letter to the Galatian church. Because if you recall, Galatians chapter 5 is where Paul has an extended conversation with the church about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This whole conversation to the Galatian church about the Spirit, about the results of living life in the Spirit, if there's any other place in the New Testament that tongues should come up, it would be Galatians. Think about this. There are, I've, I've often made the argument that there's no exhaustive list of, of um, spiritual gifts in the New Testament. There are four places in particular where, where Paul specifically addresses the gifts that God gives to believers as he makes them gifted believers that he gives as gifts to the church. Remember, we've talked about this. Spiritual gifts are not to build you up. Spiritual gifts are given to you, and then you're given to the church, and you're to use your gift to build up the church. That's the goal of spiritual gifts. There are four lists of spiritual gifts given in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. We've looked at that passage. That includes what Paul calls different languages or diversities of tongues. Now, I, I hate that they that they use the translation in, in my version, uh, different languages, because that seems to associate it with what is happening in the book of Acts. I think diversity of tongues or this angelic language is a better way to distinguish what was happening in Corinth from everything that we see happening in the book of Acts. It is included in the spiritual gift list of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Tongues is not included in the spiritual gift list of Ephesians chapter 4. It is not included in the in the uh conversation in Galatians chapter 5 of the fruit of the Spirit, and in the other list of gifts that Paul talks about, Romans chapter 12, guess what? No tongues. In the year 2020, with the Pentecostal tradition that is so prevalent in Tulsa, The argument is that tongues is a critical part of a Christian's life. And yet, outside of the church in Corinth, where we're going to see Paul puts severe restrictions on its use, no instruction shows up 
about this supposedly vital teaching anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, it's always dangerous making uh, basing an, uh, a doctrine on what's called an argument from silence. That is, you can't you can't build a doctrine on on what the Bible doesn't say. A typical example is um, sometimes uh, infant baptism is is argued from the New Testament, and and a lot of times uh, one of the one of the passages that that is used is um, the Philippian jailer. The book of Acts, Paul is is uh, freed from prison. Uh, the Philippian jailer invites him to his home. The it says that he accepts the gospel and that the jailer and his whole, entire household uh, was baptized. Sometimes that's used to argue that there was probably a baby in the household. See, that's an argument from silence. You can't build a doctrine on the supposition of what might be the case. What the argument that I'm making related to, to, to tongues, I see as, as something very different. I'm not building a case for something with the lack of evidence. I'm suggesting that we don't build a case for something when there's no evidence. Okay? Let's look at how Paul handles this in, in 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 2, he says, For the person who speaks in another language is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the Spirit. Paul's talking about a different kind of language than what was used at each point in the book of Acts, because in those episodes, clearly it was understandable by the person who was hearing. Paul's talking about a fundamentally different thing, something of a different nature. Verse 8, he says, If a trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? Again, he's describing what's happening at Corinth as a non-intelligible speech. He says it lacks lasting value. Verse 4, verse 19, and verses 23 through 25. Uh, let's just look at that last, that last one. Paul says, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other languages or in this ecstatic utterance, and people who are uninformed or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Hmm. So what happens is, when this happens in Corinth, Paul says unbelievers are put off by it because it is so chaotic and confusing to them. And yet, in Acts chapter 2, what was the response? Unbelievers were amazed by it. And drawn to the gospel because they understood it. Okay. Um, again, it is a source of confusion. Verse 2, verse 11, verse 23. This particular Corinthian expression of language um, created a chaotic episode in the worship service. And the fact that it was... Paul makes the case, the fact that it's not understood by definition, means it's not a sign. I mean, think about that. What is a sign? A sign is something that can be understood to point to something else. If the connection between what you're looking at 
and what it wants you to see, if that connection is not clear, it's not a sign. We have stop signs. Same shape, same color. You know, in some countries, stop signs don't have words on them. They don't say stop, but they have that shape and they have that color. Well, guess what? When I'm in those countries, I know that I'm supposed to stop there. It doesn't say stop, but it's a sign. It tells me that there's something else that I need to know that this represents. A sign has to not only represent something, but it has to be understandable as representing that something. Because if it's not understandable, it's by definition not an effective sign. How can tongues in the church in Corinth be considered a sign with Paul saying, nobody gets what's going on? It doesn't point to anything. They don't walk out having been led to the proper conclusion. It's not a sign. So he's going to give them some restrictions. Again, this topic starts and ends in Corinth. These restrictions, we might now say, well... This is for anybody who wants to practice tongues in a public setting in a church gathering. I think Paul was trying to fix a problem in Corinth. Now, remember, don't hear me say that there's not any legitimacy here. Paul refuses throughout the 14th chapter to say, this is not real, don't do it. What he says is, this has limited profitability... It has no value in a public setting. In fact, if it is to be valuable at all, it is probably most useful in a private encounter with God in a solitary place. Why do I say that? Because look at the restrictions that he places. First of all, in verse 26, he says that this can only be done if it edifies the church. Verse 26, what then is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. In other words, there's no room for any element in a worship service that does not strengthen, build up, edify the church. If it doesn't meet that requirement, don't include it in public worship. He says in verse 27, only two or three speakers are allowed. If any person speaks in another language, there should be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, and someone must interpret. In other words, it's to be done orderly. One person could speak at a time, probably two people, three at the most, each time requiring an interpretation. Why? Because speaking in this unintelligible language without a supernatural interpretation fails to do what? It fails to edify the church. It fails to build up the congregation. Don't do it if it doesn't edify. Only have two or three. This modern example of tongues where everybody's speaking at the same time and it's just this chaotic uh, rumble of noise. Paul would be, Paul would be beside himself in that setting because that is not something that strengthens the church. Two more real quickly. He says in verse 28, an interpreter is necessary. If there is no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. 
Now here's, here's the trick. Paul doesn't deny the possibility of this language of the angels. But he places these restrictions on its practice. Now, now follow me. You can't do it if it doesn't build up the church. You can't do it unless it's done in an orderly fashion with no more than two, maybe three speakers, one after the other, not at the same time, and each with an interpretation. You can't do it unless there is an interpretation. How do you know there's somebody that can interpret before the tongues have been spoken? The only way you can know if there's an interpretation when the tongues are spoken, is if the tongues are spoken in a private setting and an interpreter is found that can present a message to the church. What does that mean? It means you cannot stand up in the middle of the sermon and break out in tongues hoping that somebody in the room is going to know what you're saying. Notice what Paul did. He does not limit the existence, the possibility that there is something that God would do to bring us to a state of being in his presence that is beyond our rational ability to understand. But in the public corporate worship of the church, he puts such severe restrictions on the practice as to essentially make it impossible to do tongues in public worship. Well, I've had people tell me, well, pastor, I've been in the church service and somebody stood up and they began to speak in a language that nobody could understand. And then somebody stood up over here and they began to, to interpret. Okay. Okay. Maybe I'm just overly skeptical. But here's the thing. Unless I know the credibility of the Christian walk of the one who speaks in the tongue, and unless I equally have confidence in the spiritual discernment and maturity of the one who speaks the interpretation, I'm going to tell you right now, As pastor, I will not allow it. I'm not against it, except I find it virtually impossible to include what Paul is describing here within the boundaries that he assigns to the practice in a way that it can be useful in a public setting. Now, you might come to me and say, well, I have a prayer language. And in my prayer closet, sometimes I pray with words that I don't understand. You know, if Paul doesn't shoot that down, I'm not going to shoot it down. It's not my place to tell God what he can and cannot do. That's not what Paul's talking about in this chapter. 
People say, oh, it's a prayer language. Paul's not talking about a prayer language. What's the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14? The context is order in public worship. And Corinthian tongues doesn't apply. Now, what about Acts tongues? Well, let me tell you, particularly on mission fields, I have heard accounts of people that I trust who say that God, in certain instances, when there's not a translator available, when there's not, uh, you know, the ability to communicate, that God's Spirit steps in and miraculously produces a scenario where the speaker understands what he's saying and the hearer understands what he's hearing and there is a miracle of languages that takes place there. Listen, I absolutely believe that because it is within God's prerogative to reverse the curse of Babel at any moment that it suits the purposes of the gospel being made available to the whole world. But remember, Acts tongues, Corinthian tongues, apples, oranges. Let's keep it straight. And do not let anybody tell you that you are missing something that is required for your faith if you do not have this Pentecostal practice of unknown tongues. We will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 next week. Oh, man. Oh, man. We've been in a string of controversies and problems and issues that Paul's been dealing with for 14 chapters. Now, now we get to talk about Jesus. Read 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll be back together next week. Father, thank you so much. What an extraordinary gift your word is to us. It is the guideline, the authority for our faith, what we believe, and for our practice the way we live. Father, may we be submissive to your word. May we seek to understand it better day by day. And may we always adjust ourselves to your word and never attempt to adjust your word to our preferences. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.